0: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Thailand is back in the news again this week with the largest demonstrations in the country since the military coup in 2014. For the past 15 years, Thailand has witnessed a number of mass protests, street violence, and military takeovers with what seems like no end in sight. My name is Aime Peng, and I'm your guest host today for a CX story podcast that will feature a groundbreaking new book fighting for virtue that seeks to explain Thailand's political troubles and offer news insights to understanding ongoing protests that we are observing today. I'm joined today by Professor Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Duncan is one of the world's most famous scholars on Thailand, and we are very honored today to have him here with us to discuss his book, Fighting for Virtue, Justice and Politics in Thailand, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. So, Duncan, um, lots of people have had interest Mm -hmm. in scholarship published on Thailand in the past decade. Why did you decide to focus on the judiciary to explain contemporary Thai politics in this book?
1: yeah it's a really good question um but I kept finding that all roads led back to some kind of court decision i know you you too wrote an article about the the banning of political parties that came out of a workshop we were in a few years ago, and that's one of the the phenomenon that we started to see during this period that was rather confusingly referred to as the judicialization era started with two royal speeches in two thousand and six when the late king more or less said. You know, I would like judges to step forward and help solve some of Thailand's political problems. I think that was a cue for many of us to start trying to work out what it was that the courts were doing. Of course, you know, it went off in lots of different directions. There were constitutional court decisions. There were decisions of the Supreme Court that was set up specifically to try politicians and other kinds of court cases to do with freedom of expression, assembly, and so on. So it just seemed like all of a sudden, when people have been paying very little attention to courts in the context of Thai politics, from 2006 onwards, really until today, but certainly for the final decade of the last reign, the judiciary and the courts were really at the center of a lot of things that were going on in Thailand.
0: So if I were to ask you what is the most important argument or message you're making in this book, what would that be?
1: Yeah, that's always the big challenge. You you spend years writing this long, rambling book with all kinds of different stories and themes and issues in it, and how do you distill it to its essence? I mean, I think I do have an argument, which possibly not everybody is, is readily going to understand, but let me try to summarise it as briefly as I can. I don't think this idea that... Somehow, the courts and the legal system operate in a sort of vacuum removed from politics, and that therefore they're going to be able to come in and solve political problems that other institutions can't solve. Is really true. Uh, I am against legalism, and this is something that a lot of people don't quite get because we're all supposed to favor good governance and rule of law and those things, and I'm not saying those things are bad, but I do believe that ultimately law is politics by other means, and we can't therefore expect people who are trying to administer a legal system that's been created through a political process to behave in a non-political way. So what we find in the context of the Thai system, and I think it applies to many other countries around the world, although I don't study those countries nearly as much, is that the political problems that you see, say in parliament, in political parties, in elections, in other modes of institutional political engagement, they are writ large and reflected in the legal system and the way in which the legal system operates. So rather than being this sort of separate independent zone that can offer checks and balances to the political system, what you end up is two parallel systems which are in some way trying to get to the same place. And so the basic message of the book goes well beyond Thailand. It says that this idea that we could go around the world setting up lots of Constitutional courts, administrative courts, election commissions, corruption fighting commissions, and so forth, and somehow establish legalistic entities that would stop politicians from doing bad things. I basically think this is all a mistake. I think that we have to live with the politicians we have. If we don't like them, we have to throw them out of office electorally and hold them to account by other means. I think the idea that you can set up a parallel political system, which is what the courts are, and expect that to remedy the deficiencies in the core political system is an illusion. That's my basic argument. This is not the answer. This legalism stuff is not the answer to Thailand's political problems, and I suspect it's not the answer to most countries' political problems either.
0: That's so fascinating because you think, you know, we need more laws, more law professionals uh, to help increase good governance. And I think part of your skepticism about the impartiality of the court system stems from how you discuss the recruitment of judges. Um, We talk about judges as a separate caste in the Thai society. And to me, you know, the word caste seems to suggest that you're somehow born into the judiciary, that becoming a judge is hereditary. What do you mean by this?
1: Yes, I mean, if you ask me what's my favorite chapter of the book, it's, it's really the one where I talk about judges. So the courts and the judges are supposed to be the problem and in many respects, they are. They are the problem that the book addresses. But I think people got themselves into too many binary categories looking at Thailand and they just imagined that judges represent the forces of everything that's sort of conservative and bad in Thai society and that's not really how I see them. I was really really interested in the judges, I enjoyed my conversations with them, I, I kind of felt an affinity with them like you know in another life I could have been a Thai judge. You know? So Thai judges are socialized into a particular worldview. A typical trajectory for a high-flying Thai judge is that you would take the entrance exam to be a judge at the age of 25. So you graduate with your undergraduate law degree, you do some nominal work for a law firm while you're basically swatting up to pass this exam. You may or may not also do a, a master's degree, but actually, the higher education isn't really valued that much in the judiciary the ultimate judge is the person who is a star undergraduate student who then passes first time the entrance exam at the age of 25 with basically no real working experience just by having mainly memorized all the previous supreme court judgments in this fiendishly difficult exam gets ranked number one and then knows that 35 years from now, they're going to be president of the Supreme Court unless they make a hash of their career in some way. So when you go into the Thai judiciary, you're given a ranking number based on your performance in that exam, and you carry that ranking number with you your entire career. So everybody has like a number stuck on their head, more or less literally. So it's a very closely regulated system. So everybody knows what their salary is going to be, what their career trajectory is going to be, what they're going to be doing five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. They have that incredible security and they know that they've passed that very difficult exam and they have this feeling of like we are an in group. Other people don't really know what it is to be us. We have a special relationship with our expertise and our identity. And of course, that then comes into a special relationship with the nature of the Thai state and a belief that they have a special relationship with monarchy, that they are chosen by the monarchy to be the ones to administer law on behalf not just of the people and the nation, but also of the king. So, judges have an extremely specific worldview in the Thai context. And it's not easy for outsiders even to begin to get their heads around the way Thai judges think, let alone to understand what it is that they do. And to me, that's, that was the most fascinating part of the project, trying to get a little bit closer to the mental worlds of people whose life experience has been so different from my own.
0: It reminds me of your discussion of the biggest challenge, challengers to the judges were from the Nitirat group. And mm-hmm. in some ways, the academics who form part of the Nitirat group could have become judges. They all went to the same law school, uh, almost all of them study abroad. They just decided to take the academic path and not take the exam to become judges. So in some ways they were socialized in similar ways as judges, but at what point did they completely diverge?
1: Yeah, so this is what you find. Obviously, Tamasad University law faculty has produced more judges historically than any of the other law faculties. I and mean, Chulalongkorn is the other big one. And then Ramkampang kind of biting at the at the heels and then the provincial ones trying to get into the action. So big rivalry between Tamasad and Jula. But yes, if you go to Tamasat Law Faculty and you're one of the top students, then typically your goal would be to pass that judge's exam and to become one of the judges, and the people who studied alongside those future judges who then became academics just chose a different path. But Some of them were politically also rather conservative and later got selected to become constitutional court judges, But others went in a very different direction. People like uh, Piobut, who of course became a leading figure in the Future Forward Party or Warra Jade, the real intellectual leader of the Nityraad group. They took a different turn in the road. They studied alongside all those people. Many of their students to this day have gone on to be judges, but they took a path of being more critical. So it's almost as though only those who graduated from those faculties and could have been judges themselves are sort of entitled to criticise judges. So this is an interesting idea too, that to set yourself up in some sort of critical position in relation to the Thai judiciary, you have to be a different kind of insider, which is what the Nitterat people were, socialised in part of the same system, but then taking a different path. When I interviewed the Niti Rad academics, they said, you know, it's much more difficult for us now to talk to our friends who uh, we studied with, who we shared a life with for for many years at Tamasai, who then went off to be judges, because at a certain point the, the wall came down between us. We're haunted by the ghosts of the judicial institution.
0: Right, so it seems to me like you're arguing that basically the judges are grouped into a particular kind of social environment where they don't step out of the line. And one of the most important functions of judges in the Thai system for you is actually to defend the the crown. So I wonder if this argument of in defense of the crown is very much tied to the former king, or do you see this as continuing relationship as well with the current monarch?
1: That is a really good question. And I think a lot of Royalists or people coming from a conservative perspective are struggling with this question because they were very, very attached to their view of themselves in relation to the, to the late king, King Bhumibol. that we have a new king and the Thailand is now a very different place. And my fieldwork for this project ended before the change in reign and I haven't had a chance to go back to talk to, to judges about that reality. But I think it's a problem that many people associated with traditional and conservative institutions are facing now that they have this idea of themselves based on a previous reign and that must be producing some kind of crisis of identity and it is also interesting that there's been a shift and you know we've been told that you know the les majesty law isn't really being used these days there's been an instruction more or less that uh, people shouldn't be charged under that law uh, in the same way and Judges seem to be performing a subtly different role because it seemed like from those 2006 speeches made by the late King, he kind of gave the judges a mission to solve Thailand's political problems. Now, I'm not saying judges aren't still involved in that process, but it seems like that that kind of sense of, I'm handing this problem over to you has not been the case in the new reign. So some of the burden of, the, of judicialization has been sort of lifted, but of course, ironically, the court cases continue, and of course the party bannings. We have two very, very interesting party bannings over the past 18 months. So at the level of the constitutional court, the judicialization process very much continues. But for the level of the other courts, the pressure seems to be slightly off or has been changed to a different form from the form of the final 10 years of the last round
0: Right, so we shall see whether the dynamic continues. But uh, from your perspective, it seems like under the previous king, the judiciary was directly empowered to, quote, Mm -hmm. do something, and now it's not so clear cut. So in terms of talking about doing something, I thought that one of the most fascinating chapters that I read was actually chapter five, uh, which you discuss computer crime uh, cases. Mm -hmm. And it just seems so bizarre, especially, you know, for people who are not intimately following Thai politics, that crime cases, an um, important way for judges to show loyalty to the monarchy. Could you talk about this some more?
1: Well, I think the point here is really that, you know, we, I just mentioned there's a less Majesty law, you, know, you can't criticize the monarchy and you can face serious punishment for doing so in Thailand. And of course, that law is something of an international embarrassment because very few countries have laws like that or enforce them in, in the harsh way. That was the case during the period of my field work. Uh, So what we saw after the last coup in 2006 was a shift to different kinds of legislation and one of the most important steps in that was the passage of the Computer Crime Act, which was later revised after the second coup, after the 2014 coup. So we've had two main iterations of this act. So what you then can do is instead of charging someone under a defamation or a Les Majesté law, you can use a computer crime law, which most people would imagine was to stop people from stealing credit cards online and, and, and stuff like that. That's what we think of computer crime as. In the Thai case, computer crime became making critical statements, which might be about monarchy, or they might be about something else in some way threatening to the, to the established order in Thailand. But you can charge people under what sounds like a technical crime. They were accusing you of doing something bad with your computer. But actually, the intent behind a lot of the cases that were brought, including the one that I talk about in detail in the book, was really to show that we don't have to throw this Les Majesty law at you. We can find other ways of trying to limit your freedom of expression that sound much more reasonable than uh, the sort of medieval connotations of a Les Majestés law so it's, it's like a post medieval as matter state law and we dress it up in this this high-tech sounding language it's all about it it's actually not about it at all it's about the relationship between monarch and subject or monarch and citizen but it doesn't appear that way so judges can rebrand themselves to be very very modern and yet what they're doing isn't just another iteration of this relationship which is in its origins rather pre modern
0: so you're saying legalism is not the solution to Thailand's political trouble. So what is then the solution you think and is the judiciary part of that solution?
1: Yeah so Thailand's not the only country in the world to have had problems with electing people who turned out to be not particularly good at running the country and not particularly suitable. But the difficulty is that if you resort too quickly to um drastic measures of which a military coup is the most conspicuous or these alternative you know the, the original phrase coup d'etat is actually just a sharp blow of the state it doesn't have to be anything to do with the military at all so you've got lots of different options for sharp blows of the state now a lot of the sharp blows of the state were being administered by the judiciary like banning political parties and uh passing harsh sentences against former prime ministers which or being about to do so which caused them suddenly to disappear obviously with the collusion of the authorities conveniently to take up residence in some alternative place thousands of miles away from thailand these kinds of mechanisms are ways of displacing problems that don't really deal with them so yes you've got you know taxmen and being like out of the country but they still have millions of people supporting them so the problem seems to have gone away But it's just like it's out of sight, out of mind solution. What you actually have to do with people who are problematic politicians is to vote them out of office. And it's a bit like, you know, always pushing the emergency button, pulling the emergency cord on the train to bring it to a slamming halt. But if every time things start to get bad and you feel like the train is going too fast, you panic and you say, OK, I'm just going to press this button and then everything's going to stop. You just have train wrecks all over the country because other trains come crashing into the back of you constantly so this was the problem that people got socialized into a system where someone and this was the problem with the with the monarchical system too the populace is kind of infantilized into believing that someone's going to rescue them from their own political mistakes. Everybody makes political mistakes, but you have to take responsibility for them. So you can't wait for the king, the judge, or the military to step in and pull the emergency cord, bring the train to a crashing halt. And then you can just reset and write an entirely new constitution from scratch. You know, And, and they're talking again about the constitution, as though somehow the constitution was the problem, when, as we know, the constitution is a symptom. And writing a new constitution isn't going to make the slightest difference, so long as are extra constitutional forces that feel entitled to intervene and also to seize power if necessary. So this is my problem with, with legalism. But basically, people have a political system for which they take responsibility and when they have politicians that are causing them problems, they have to find ways of getting them out that don't involve any train wrecks. This is the problem in a country like Thailand. It's just been too easy to pull the emergency cord. And the judges got drafted into this in 2006. You're going to solve our problem. The Future Forward Party is very annoying. So let's just ban it and then it's going to go away. Well, of course, it doesn't go away. It turns into some new manifestation, which they're now trying to figure out what to do with. What do we do with all these disgruntled people who feel they're not represented in parliament? Because why are they not represented in parliament? Of course, because we banned the political party that they felt some affinity with. So what are they doing? They're taking to the campuses and taking to the streets. Wouldn't it have been a better idea just to leave the political party there where it wasn't actually in power and couldn't really do anything that drastic, but was at least giving people a voice? That's a a very clear example of how a legalistic solution to the problem actually ends up just creating a whole new set of problems and preparing you for the next train wreck. So I think legalism became roped into this larger, let's pull the emergency court, thinking and because Thai judges haven't really been socialized and, and trained to, to understand their role in a very political way, they got drawn into this, I think initially with thinking that this was all about doing good because there are good people and bad people, it's fighting for virtue, which is a, a phrase from that uh, royal speech. But in the end, it's a little bit harder to work out who the good people and the bad people are than we might think. It turns out that most people have some good and some bad in them, rather than being readily classified <laughs> into one side or another so when you're dealing with messy realities these kind of moralistic dichotomies which turn into legalistic dichotomies aren't really the answer so my solution is not a solution anyone's going to be very happy about i'm saying you have to embrace politics in its messiness and complexity deal with the politicians you actually have and try to work out how to get rid of them which is a problem we have in almost every country much of the time but you know you just can't resort to okay let's just find some legal mechanism to ban this person, to shut them down, to stop them from speaking, to throw them into exile so that they'll just go away because the problem won't go away if it's dealt with by these draconian legal solutions. And judges should really be in a position to say, this is not our role, I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to find another way of dealing with these complicated political problems, which are not amenable to legalistic solutions."
0: I think that's a wonderful way of actually capturing the heart of your book but also to talk about what's happening now, which is right. getting another constitution is not going to help Thailand get closer to afraid not. <sighs> uh, to peace uh, and, right. and some kind of order. And I think your book really captures the heart of that, right? Is that you can't rely on the judges or some other institutions. We need to look within ourselves, within politicians, at mm-hmm. the, the people. So thank you very much, Duncan, for this Really, really fascinating, but also really relevant discussion of yes. the book. Uh, Duncan, of course, has another book coming out with Anyarat Chatrakun future Forward, which captures yes. one of the most fascinating mm-hmm. uh, cases of political parties in Thailand's contemporary history, coming out in a few months.
1: It should be out in a few weeks, I think. In a few US weeks. Press. Yes, wow. that's right. Yes.
0: Uh, from the NIAS Press. Um, You can get a copy of Fighting for Virtue either at Cornell University Press website, Amazon, or bookdepository.com. Thank you so much again, Duncan. And we hope to be able to host you again uh, for your upcoming publications. And thank you for your views on Thai politics, which are really much needed right now.
1: Thanks so much,
0: Anne. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.